Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad, and we are live at the National with not a surf. This is one band's nearly three decades of hustle, highs, lows, plus high-low, <laughs> heartbreak, reinvention, all during the vast disruption of the recording industry. You're going to hear the stories, then you're going to hear the music, but now, please, wait for it. It's a not a <laughs> on Full Disclosures Radio. <laughs> Do stay with us. This most special Full Disclosure Live is made possible by the support of Killian's, I kid, I kid. <laughs> by VPM, Virginia's home for public media, using the power of media to educate, inspire, and entertain. More at vpm.org. By Quirk Hotel Richmond, your premier boutique hotel in the heart of downtown RVA. This beautiful set was designed by my pal Stevie McFadden at Flourish Spaces and local studio Big Secret hooked us up with this laser-made sign. You gotta love the RVA. Tonight's special episode will podcast to both NPR.org and iTunes. You can subscribe at linkfulldradio.com. Joining me on stage from parts all around the world, not a surf, you see Matthew Cause here to my immediate left. Ira Sebastian Elliott, he prefers to be known as Ira Elliott. You can take the Sebastian Elliott. Okay. Visiting us from Sarasota, Louis Lino from Austin, and Senor Daniel. Lorca. Lorca de Ibiza. <laughs> <laughs> I figured I'd just save my commute time and just move there. It's so, it's so cosmopolitan. You have one, one of us visiting from Cambridge, Mass, Sarasota, Austin, and these guys all got together in the hotel tonight, last night, and were like, hey, what's up? Let's jam in the hotel room. And the, the people next door were like, they were, were grateful, but they were mortified that there was this performance going on. <laughs> Take me back, because I, I swear I could fanboy with you guys for hours and hours. But I guess, Matthew, uh, is it Guitar World magazine, early yeah. 90s? I want to get the ooze that this this whole phenomenon came out of in Manhattan and Brooklyn in the early 90s. Take me back. Well, let's see. So we've been in a couple, we'd been in a couple of bands before this one, and um, I was temping a lot. I was doing the graveyard shift, 1 a.m. to 9 a.m. at Bear Stearns. Wow. Uh, and I was supposed to go to bed right when I got out of work, but every morning at 9 o'clock when I left work, I had this hooky feeling, you know. So all I wanted to do was walk around and eat snacks and stuff. So. Uh, it was a very tiring life, but it, it paid well, which, which helped us make demos and stuff. But then for this band, for Not A Surf, we decided that we were going to do it more for fun and get jobs that we liked. So I was lucky enough to have a friend who was working at Guitar World magazine, and they hired me, which was great. And um, my job was to sort of cover new music, um, which didn't always work out so well. There's a band I love called Blonde Redhead, and I wanted to write about them for the magazine, and, and we weren't cool enough mm. as a magazine, so, so they didn't. But, um, but it was a really, you know, I was doing something I, I loved. And, um, you know, and, and in, that, in that sort of uh, feeling is, is, was putting this band together where we were really, you know, we were ambitious in the long term, but we wanted to have fun first, play for our friends. So first. you and Daniel were pals in high school? 
we went to school together. We uh, ended up in the same school when we were six. And Daniel was always in a different class, same grade. And, uh, mm. but then we ended up in the same class and then there was an instigator. I was thinking about this, you know, you need somebody to do things. And this guy, Stefan Dehe, who might be here, um, Hey man, <laughs> how's it going? Hey, Dude. so Stefan came to school and, and he wanted to actually put a band together. You know, and I played guitar, but who knows? I don't know when I would have gotten around to actually doing the thing, you know? So we put a band together, or they did. I auditioned, I, I didn't get in. Okay, okay, okay. The, the, but then I did. The then first I, time. Didn't yeah, the it. first time. But um, uh, yeah. yeah, but I mean, it was like, you know, Stefan had a heart attack machine, he had this, you know, badass Telecaster, and then he had a bunch of records that were just, you know, really important at the time. And, um, and yeah, I mean, that we, I had a friend that kind of played drums, uh, not too well, but well enough. And so then he was like, well, dude, you gotta learn to play bass. And, and he just, you know, I just got a bass from my, from, from my birthday from my mom, the same one I'm playing tonight, or, well, not tonight, but generally. And, um, and yeah, we just started, listening to music and, and just playing the record and then just playing along to it. And that's why the first time Matthew didn't quite make it because he wasn't used to that. I'd never, yeah, I'd never done that. I'd Is it true or false that you didn't think you were good enough to recruit established drummer Ira? Absolutely true. Well, I the thing is that you can't hold on to a drummer if, if they're still looking around. So you have to be, you have to keep their attention, you know? They're like hogs. Well, they're but we, out from you. Because yeah. he'd been in like real bands and then, uh, and, and, and actually, yeah. I remember, yeah, we, we, I, I, I kept wanting to call him, and Matthew's like, we don't even have songs, we can't call him. We're gonna play with him for like, you know, two, two rehearsals, and then he'll fly. I would have done it. I, I'm a drummer, I say yes to everything. <laughs> so chicken, chicken or egg dilemma at this point, because I wanna get to the serendipitous, uh, infamous encounter with the late Rick Ocasek of the Cars. Do you convince the guy on spec to cut a cassette tape before you make an audacious overture at the knitting factory or one of these people that you know, a friend who knows a friend, or did you get Rick Ocasek's buy-in first? How did that even happen? Well, let's see. So um, Daniel was going to Spain every summer. I had a friend, Joe Habaika, who wanted to start a singles label. He had just enough money to print the vinyl, so I said, okay, well, I'll, I'll print the covers. And so we did our first 45. That's it was socialism. called The Plan. <laughs> and Daniel took it to Spain and played it for somebody in a bar who, and they played it for someone else, you, you could tell this part, but, but basically we were offered a record deal to put out a record in Spain. In Spain? Yeah, but that's the thing is that we, so we made an album which is basically high-low, couple of different songs, but it's basically that album. Those are the demos you can hear on, on Spotify and other places like yeah. Amateur and everything? Our drummer Aaron Conti was working at the Power Station uh, recording studio, so we, he was a receptionist there, so we got free nighttime recording, so we spent two, nights recording the first album. Um, what was your day job? Uh, being a temp, yeah. Or, or was I then a guitar world? Uh, no, you were a guitar world. I was a guitar world, yeah. One, yeah. And were you working yeah. also? Yeah, I was coding. I'm C++. You're a coding bro. C++. And you're just a full-time drummer for hire. Yeah, I was not very hireable. <laughs> I had it when, when I finally got, you got me the cassette, I worked at a bowling alley. I was the, that's the quality employee you're getting here. <laughs> Yeah, no, I always just like, I always just focused on trying to 
but we, so we any job I have is totally secondary to that. And you know, we, we never wanted to like fire our drummer, but like when whenever we needed a drummer, I was kept saying, "Fire Elliot," and Matthew kept saying, "No, no, no." And then finally, it was like, "No, now we have the songs because yeah, you gotta wait." Our, our drummer right Aaron left the band, yeah. and then uh, we had the songs, and so I was like, "Okay," um, and you know, there was no internet or anything, so. Finding him was not wasn't that hard, but wasn't that easy either. I had to look. Yeah. I looked in Manhattan. Didn't know no nothing in the white pages. And then one day I was in Brooklyn. Looked there, nothing. Um, and then one day in Queens, I was in Queens, and so I looked at a boom. There he was, Ira Elliot. Queens. And so I was like, okay, I found the number, Matthew. How you call him? So did you guys, did you guys cut a terrified. tape? Did you guys cut a tape, and it must be somewhere, and we should have embedded it in here, but yeah. did you cut this mixtape? Like, my time in Manhattan, you'd meet guys in Times Square that would hand you CDs that they burned, <laughs> and like beg you to get right. them to someone. Like, right. it was a kind of an air of desperation to it. But I want to hear this, like, you, you noticed out of the corner of your eye, Rick Ocasek, for everybody, Rick Ocasek of the Cars, you know, they start off in 78, 79. He had left the band after a huge Grammy run, like, they took over the 80s, married a supermodel, and was finished with the band by 1988, 1989, and he wanted to become a producer. This is someone who learned with uh, Roy Thomas Baker, who did Queen, with Mutt Lang, who did Def Leppard and ACDC. So were you kind of stalking him? No, no, he was just, <laughs> he was definitely on my, on my radar, yeah, you know. I discussed him at some point. Yeah, I, I, I'd well, been on the subway two weeks before and sat next to Mitch Easter, who produced the first R.E.M. album, and I was, and I had a tape in my pocket and I was too shy to give it to him. And I promised myself that the next time I saw somebody that I should give it to, I would. Um, yeah, so we were at a show at the Knitting Factory and, and yeah, I was walking out and saw him and absolutely. One, one friend of ours who lived at, at, the, at the sitcom, our place in New York, um, he, was, uh, he, was, he was a drummer. He played drums for us for a little tiny bit and he was uh, the assistant engineer during the Weezer sessions at uh, for the Blu-ray. So Rick Ocasek produced Weezer. Yeah. yeah, and so every day Daniel would come home and bring the, that day's rough mixes. And, and, and I was like, wow, oh, it's starting to sound more and more like the Pixies. It's starting to sound more like this. And, I, and you, we saw like how, the, how, it, how Rick was literally shaping their sound. You know, it, was, it was a huge influence. And it sounded amazing. And so we were listening to the Blue Record way before it came out. And then so we to really- To Weezer's album. Yeah. You were, you were kind of aping that ahead of yeah, but we'd already recorded our stuff. But yeah. but so then when we we went to see was it Blonde Redhead or did we see went to see Blonde Redhead in uh, the club uh, at the Knitting Factory. Yeah, at the Knitting Factory. But you know, my, my older sister had started buying Cars records in 1980, and I always just loved them. And there was something about how they were it was catchy and uh, really rocking, but also a little weird. Subversive. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so. So t take me to that scene. You saw him at the Knitting Factory. Yeah. Yep. Which is a club that's seen a creative space in New York. Yeah. Very famous. Yep. And yep. you just think, all right, I'm not going to flub this moment. Yeah. Uh, we had to, we had to run because we were playing at the, we were playing with Luna, opening for Luna that night. It was a gig that night. So. We were playing. You were already big enough to open for Luna then. Well, no. Nah, they weren't really. Nothing. No. Nah. <laughs> so how did this happen? Yeah, well, so, so yeah, so I noticed him and, and, um, and also, you know, Ira just joined the band, so we're trying to, like, get something going so that we can keep him. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, I, well, it's, it's just reality of, of drummers in yeah. New York or any, any, anywhere. I was roading at the time. I, that, was yeah. my, that was the other job that I had. Yeah. So we'd made, I'll just tell you just quickly that we'd made this, 
made this album for a Spanish record company, and we sent it to them, and they said, we love it, we want to put it out around the world. And they didn't have any distribution anywhere outside of Spain, so <laughs> we're flattered, but what do we do now? We No, you know, we couldn't do it. So, but it felt like a finished record, you know, so I don't know if that helped me feel like, I was gonna say confident, it's not that, it just made me feel like I wanted to do was something. Was he sitting in the corner? No, he's standing he's there. Walking there. And I, and I, what did you, and you got, uh, Mr. So, Okasik? Yeah, I'm sorry to bother you, but I'm in a band and I have a, a tape I'd love to give you. And he was very kind and he, he took it and said, it, is your number on it, is your name on it? Okay. And did you ever expect to hear from him? It's such an well, almost no. famous like anecdote. I, I went, I dined out on that for two weeks. You know, we, just we, telling people that I'd given it to, I didn't, never that, thought I'd hear from him. After he called me up, he's like, dude, I, I came home and there was a message. Hold on, I heard the legend in New York is Matthew had a voice uh, answer yeah, to messages. Right. Hello, Matthew, it's Paulina Poroskova. I'd like for you to come over. <laughs> <laughs> not true? No, not true, not true. Um, it's a better story. No, I have not, you know, I, I had a roommate and I came home and he looked like the Cheshire Cat. You know, he's like, you, you should listen to the answering machine. Because, <laughs> uh, and, and it was Rick saying to call him and, you know, it was very, very kind. He, was, he wasn't home and he was, uh, he was in the Berkshires or something and he gave me the number there and I called him and we set up a, a day, you know, two days later. And, uh, it was summer evening and I rode my bike up to his house on 19th Street. And uh, I, this is, I think it's pretty funny, I locked my bike to a, a pole, but I hadn't locked it to, the, to anything because I was so in a dream <laughs> that I must just have taken the lock and closed it again. Yeah, I didn't do anything. So they call you inside and there's a recording studio inside. Was it Paulina who answered the door? Paulina Poroskova, the uh, supermodel, the face of the 80s. No, it was, it was Rick, but... But I, I stood with, with the two of them in the kitchen for a while and they, and they really put me at ease. They were so sweet. And then uh, and I sat at the kitchen table with Paulina and, and Rick made us coffee. Um, You're domestic. Yeah. yeah. And I, I, I wrote a little piece about this. I, I, feel, I feel silly repeating the line because it's, it's such a, it was a compliment being paid to me, but it meant so much to me. She, she said, while he was making the coffee, she said, he, he likes your phrasing. And this was the first time that somebody on the outside had recognized something in, 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 in us and me, you know. And so, uh, yeah, I was really, really moved. And then he, he, he invited me down to his studio in the basement, and he said, what is this tape? And I said, it's this, uh, you know, it's, it's an album, but we can't put it out. I told him the short story of why. And he said, well, you could release it like that. It's good. But if you ever want to re-record those songs, uh, I want to produce it and I'll, I'll do it cheap. And I said, well, in fact, we have this new drummer we're really excited about, we, we want to remake it. And he said, do you, do you have a record deal? And I said, no. And he said, okay, we'll stay in touch. And then a couple of weeks later, more fairy tale things happened in that we played a little club uh, on 16th Street and a guy came up to me after and, and asked me for a, for a tape and he said he worked at a record company called Number Six. And I'd heard of them because they'd put out an unrest record called Imperial that I really loved. And, uh, and a Dean Wareham single, speaking of Luna. And this was exciting, you know, cool little, cool little label. And uh, so I give him a tape and he calls me the next day and says, well, actually, I work at Electra, and uh, I played this for a friend, Ben Weber, who's now our manager. And 
Ben played it for his boss, who was an A&R guy, and so Bobby, the guy from number six, that's the name of the label, calls me that day and says, well, when he said, you know, he says I work electro, and my, my boss wants to see you today. And so we all yeah. went up there, yeah. and they offered us a deal on the spot. Um, and we said no, just because it was kind of over. It was the right well, thing to do. Never you know, the first thing you're offered. You know, it was kind of overwhelming. And anyway. Oh, sure. Did you have any representation, any kind of like comparables or know what, yeah, guys, we've got to go in for this. We've got to hold off. No. You had some financial chops. You worked at Bear Stearns, but. Yeah. No, no. That's, that's not financial stuff. I always think it's like I Matt, type fast. It's like Ben Affleck I, and Matt Damon and Goodwill Hunting like retail. I, I was I was one with no. the Amex card. No, no, no. But I'd always wanted to be on there's a New York label called Matador that I really yeah. love. There's a North Carolina label called Merge that I love. Yeah. And then Touch and Go also. These are labels I I, I really I idolize the bands on those labels and you know, kind of fetishize those labels, but I couldn't get anything going. But so this was an unusual offer, but you know, commercial alternative was still happening. There were still hits on the radio of kind of left-leaning college rock stuff, but we, we kind of knew that window was closing. This was the tail end of that period. Yeah. So it was probably a bad idea, but it's all we had going. And, and uh, oh, so I called Rick and said, Electra offered us a deal. And he said, and the cars had been hold on, cars. let me make a call, and he calls us company called Maverick was Madonna's label in Los Angeles and they fly us out there and offer us a deal and then my sister had worked in college radio and her um, her program director worked at Warner Brothers and I called him for advice and then they offered us the deal um, so you guys are hot and uh, anybody in 1996 remember for better or for worse because we have to get into popular yeah um, you know, I, the people who don't know you know popular. And I think at first blush, if you'd remember that in 1996, I, I, I remember MTV, so much airplay. It was still the heyday of the $17 CD and FM radio and popular. I thought you were kind of like a frat type band. You mm -hmm. were a sarcastic mm -hmm. band. Mm -hmm. Once every two weeks, once mm -hmm. every two weeks. You know, you watch that, um, da, 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 you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To this day, people who don't know you, it's like, oh, popular, popular. But then this is important because it sets up a kind of a, a first peak. I have to know what that was like that year. I mean, I saw you on 120 Minutes. You were firmly like, an, you were in the MTV firmament at that point. Take me back to that yeah. moment. I remember, do you remember when we did the Stimpy dance? <laughs> we, we, we were coming back from Canada and, uh, and or someplace north, Maine or something, uh -huh. and then we got a phone call from, from Electra saying that like, that we were going on whatever rotation we were going on. And, right. and we started, we were on the grass doing like the stimpy thing. Happy, 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 joy, joy. Yeah. Like happy, totally happy, joy, joy. Freaking yeah, yeah. out because we yeah. couldn't even believe it. And then it was basically like a question of a couple of days. All of a sudden, you just walk on stage and it's like, it's like the Beatles or something. Yeah. There's all, all these weird kids screaming like crazy. Was that like the MTV Total Request Live Vintage? Was that like you guys in, in, in Times Square? I think we predate, we predate that, I think. Um, did like 120 minutes. 120 minutes. But yeah, the, it, it's true. We were on tour with this band, Super Drag, and and there was a there was a little moment. Yes, so good. Super um, John Davis has a band called the Leaves of Memory now, who are fantastic. Um, so there was a little a little moment when the audience in front. Maybe it's just one show. Maybe it was a couple. It's like football players and cheerleaders. Oh yeah, they but didn't it didn't get last. It. it was just a little moment, and they then did and not then get it, the irony. Yeah. 
and then it was, you know, all kinds of people. But so the, was, the, was the deal from Electra a multiple CD deal? Were you expected after this tour, yes. after the froth of 96 to go in? It was the proximity effect that you recorded. Yeah, that's right. And then so how many CDs did they expect from you out of this deal? Do you remember? We had a two firm, and then they, right. could, they could keep us if they wanted five. to. Five. Yeah. If they wanted. But we had to do five, they firm. had to do two. Yeah. Proximity effect comes yeah. out, what, in 98, 99? 98. Europe and the United States? Mm -hmm. And this is this is a critical part. This is a critical part of the story setting up everything else Tell me what happened. It's like the legend is you went to Europe and you got a phone call. Oh Well, let's see there were a couple of phone calls I mean there were there were actually a lot of phone calls while we were making the record I was talking to our A&R guy and, and he kept saying that we would we really needed a, a single and It's great to have one but the way he was putting it was if we don't the term was dying on the vine. You know, if we don't, if we don't have a, another radio hit, we'll be, we'll be dead out there. And that's, that's this, that was the beginning of realizing that we were with the wrong people because if you don't have a single, you still have an album. And we were really excited about the record we were making. Um, but there was this real pressure to have, to have a hit and um, apparently we didn't, according to them. So they delayed the album and then it came out in Europe anyway. Yeah, they delayed it once, then they delayed yeah. it again. At, that, at one point, the second delay was quite quite long, and so the people in, uh, in, that handled um, us in France were very excited that we had that extra time. So they're like, "Hey, let's fly them over," and uh, and then we ended up doing a ton of promo in France, did all these TV shows, and and we did really really well and got great reviews and everything. And then basically, they. Electra said, okay, you got to get the record off the shelves. So they, it was yeah. first sale for a month in France. And only in France, because it came out there earlier than anywhere else. And then they just didn't release it anywhere else and then took it off the shelves in France. So it was basically like really a complete sabotage. I mean, they, they really they wanted- They sabotaged it. Yeah, they, they wanted just, you know, they, because they wanted us to either go ahead and make another popular, literally like another version of it. Was Rick Okasik available for counsel at this point? Like guys, like- or was that? Did, did yes, he was. Yes. He was, and he helped us do an edit. Um, there, we had a song called "Mother's Day," which was something that I had a funny feeling about trying to write a hit on purpose, and so to make myself feel better about it. And now I, I wouldn't mind that at all, and I'd probably try to do it on purpose every day. You know, <laughs> I, I, I don't know how. I don't know who who does. Um, well, some guys in Sweden know how to. Um, but so I, so I'd written this song about about um, about date rape, and uh, because I I thought if I write about something that is important to me or an issue that I that I think um, needs to be talked about, then I'll feel okay about trying to make a hit out of it. And I sort of failed. It's not it's not musically super catchy, but we had a we had a moment of thinking, okay, well, we th this is the song we think. Could be that, and we called Rick and asked him to come help us um, edit it. It was in Louis' studio, yeah. and what what were we doing? We were just like making a shorter version. Did we change it? Yeah, we were cutting out some verses and yeah. making a, a short right. first chorus, that kind of thing. And um, right, I, yeah, I remember him. As it was really kind of him to do it because I'm sure he realized that this wasn't going to work. The legend in New York is that you guys all re regrouped under the Williamsburg Bridge and Daniel threw the masters and his bass into the East River like, it's over! <laughs> <laughs> no, no more music for Joe! No, it did That's like, 
enough people tell these stories in it, but how, this is what this is. That's what almost I a true story. I did I did have to go to the magic shop one day to we were gonna go mix. And again, like people are always really, really sweet to us in the industry because they know that we don't have a label, blah blah blah. So they always give us, you know, almost freebies and everything. So we're doing some mixing there, and I had to bring the master tapes, like three or four. They're heavy. Of the electromagnetic. Yeah, and it was a it was a Sunday, and I didn't you know even think about the fact that it was the marathon. So I had to cross Bedford Avenue to get to the subway, and I was carrying these super heavy tapes, and it was right when the whole thing was going through, and these guys were waiting for me, and there was just nothing they could do. When I was like, oh. So I had to literally join the marathon. <laughs> Took me like seven or eight blocks right. <laughs> to make it all the way across. You know? And like, I overshot the subway by like five blocks. <laughs> and I, and I, got to the, I got to the studio all like, <gasps> he's just, uh, that's heavier than the guy with the rhino costume. Dude. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You are listening to Not A Surf Live at the National. They're talking about their quarter century in the music business, the highs, the lows, the reinvention, the tenacity, the grit, the hustle. Where was that moment, if you guys can timestamp it and place it for me? Was it at a bar where you guys met and regrouped over a bunch of pints and said, listen, we can either, guys, we gave this a great try. It was great. We had the euphoria of 1996. I understand that you continued to gig through it. Yeah, I remember a show at the Cooler. I think that was the first, that was a club on 14th Street, and that was the first show we'd played after realizing that that record wasn't going to come out. And, you know, it, it, it was upsetting at first. You know, I remember sitting in my, in my apartment, we were saying, well, there's no way they won't put it out. They're just not going to support it. And then a couple of days later, we get the call that actually it's not happening. And we played at the Cooler, and, um, you know, there were a few more people than we expected, and the audience was really enthusiastic, and we had a great time. And that blown out is basically the last 20 years, because what's happened since then, when people say, like, how, you know, how do you, what's the secret to staying together for so long, we have some answers, but the real answer is that that entire time we've had a really kind, uh, generous audience that made the shows fun, and why would we stop? You know, this is, it's a, it's a great thing to be able to do. Um, What's amazing to me yeah. is if you take. <laughs> I said it, you guys are the fans of the very first act we had on our show, David Lowry of Cracker and Camper Van Beethoven. I hope he's here tonight. Um, he, uh, <laughs> well, I was telling him when we had him on the show that I remember my first MP3 was Everlong by the Foo Fighters, circa November 1997. That's a good song. So there was something very big about the change with the industry. Mm -hmm. So getting, having a breakup with Electric only, mean, Electra only mm -hmm. meant so much. In the five years between then and when you put out Let Go, which I want to get into, you had the MP3 exploded. I want to know where you were when you first encountered Napster. I want to know where yeah. you were when you first handled an iPod. Right, and right. And amid this disruption, you guys decided to go full-on indie. Walk me through it. Ira. I made a big deal about buying one of the first uh, MP3 players. It had a lot of, it had like six gigabytes. I don't know what it had, like, you know, 30, 64. I don't, can't remember. It looked like a CD player. It was by a creative. And at the time, Nomad, yeah, Nomad, that's right. Thank yeah. you. And I was so happy to like load this thing. It was very glitchy, and 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 you uh, kept re having to restart it. But it was great to like be able to travel with all that music. That was just about a year before the iPod. 
with a programmer in you, Danielle, said that at this point, you're like, why doesn't Electra just give it back to us and I can rip all the MP3? I could theoretically stream it out. You understood being a computer well, person where this was headed. Well, it was actually quite funny because I was, I was, I had a, a sort of a partner whose name was also Daniel, and he, he, he was more like sort of the front end of, but he was putting together websites, like he was going up, pitching uh, to, Ele to Electra. He was pitching them a website and a streaming with content and blah, blah. They didn't even know what MP3s were. So I was working on that with him on the back on one end, and then I was signing a deal with them, uh, you know, as a band on the other end, which was really strange. They had no idea. Uh, but, the, you know, the guy that went to the meetings was, was my partner, Daniel, and they really had no idea at all. Like, it, it was, we had a hard time selling them the fact that things were going to stream and people were going to download this and they were going to get it like that in that format. So we were very careful that when we signed, we maintained all those rights to ourselves because they didn't even know. That we only gave them, like, you know, LPs, you know, vinyl CDs and, and cassettes. I, for one, was a huge fan of the proximity effect. I Napstered the whole thing. I'll pay you retroactively for it. I'll be very honest with you. You already have. Well, you know, I put it on my first. I put it on my first iPod. But I'll tell you this: that um, the backstory behind this, that uh, even after that, when all of this stuff was happening, and even forget about that, iTunes. Like, what did you guys think about? No longer the the compact here is not the seventeen dollars CD, but people are gonna fish out your. Your, your, your favorite things that might give you 99 cents well, for an I, MP3. I thought, I thought making songs 99 cents was such a big mistake, and I really wish they'd made it five cents, you know, because then there would have been a question of honor. If, if something that they can make like that for nothing is gonna cost you almost as much as buying a physical object, it's not fair, it's too expensive. So I don't blame anyone for stealing it, but... <laughs> If it, had, if it had been five cents, right, if, if, if MP3s had cost five cents to buy legitimately, you would have felt kind of like a chump to steal it. I don't know. There were people sitting around on the Ethernet connections in the office all night, like, right. filling up their little keychain drives. I remember this, 2001. Well, I remember when I, when I heard of Napster, I went to take a look, and I, and I typed in not a surf, and what came up row after row after row was detachable penis. <laughs> it, it's a song by, King, by a band called King Missile, and there's talking in it. And I realized that for some reason, uh, a lot of people were mistaking, were conflating the two bands and the two songs. And so I was... That on... was Daniel jamming the system. <laughs> yeah, right, why? Remember all the crap you would download? Like, it, it, felt, it felt really wrong at that era, but you knew that the writing was on the wall. You start yeah. to see mass consolidation, Look at all the, the labels out there that started crumbling, like it's like a, a dinosaur in extinction period. And I want to get at the decision, the executive decision that you guys made, this vision quest to take, what was it, a van across the country and sell merch, and if you had enough by the time you hit LA, I don't know if the story's apocryphal too, that you would no, burn I mean, your follow-on CD. No, I, I was, or false? I, I had the idea and I sold it to these guys. I mean, they, you know, we agreed that we could do it. Whose it van? We, did we buy the van at that point? We bought, which was probably not a great I idea. I don't but, remember. Well, we decided to make another record uh, at the same studio where we'd made The Proximity Effect with the same producer, and we toured our way over there, and we didn't really know, we didn't have quite enough money to pay him, but we knew that we, if we sold enough merch, and so that was like, you know, every night I would say, you know, we have, we have records and, and you, know, you know, we have T-shirts and CDs, and, and if you 
buy one, you'll help us make the next record. And you know, it's kind of what everybody does, but it, it, it felt great. We, you know, after, after being in a sort of very corporate environment to then be selling something ourselves, our version of the proximity effect that we put out our, you know, our, so it was on like our a, like a label. Neolithic crowdsourcing at the very outfit. And the, the, yeah, the, the yeah, legend is much. you showed up with lots of $1 bills and yes. $5 bills. How did you find Barsook? Also, also, for example, I'll give you another example, is that, is that um, I, made, uh, I made all kinds of virtual reality content for it. So it was like a mixed... Uh, it was like an enhanced CD, a part of it you could put in your computer, and then you would have all this extra stuff, including, you know, you could tour through the studio and everything. And Electra said that if we did that, it would, we let, they'd have to charge an extra dollar. <laughs> and I was like, what do you mean? I, I did everything. I mean, I took, I had to, I had to rent, I had to rent a 185 degree fisheye lens to do the whole VR thing. Back then it was not, you know, now you can do it with an iPhone, but back then it was a big deal. Yeah. Like a dollar more, why? So the, the very first ones that came out on Electra, because they did print like 10,000 10, of them or something, uh, don't have the VR, whereas ours did, you know. And then we got to, we got to LA and then, you know, we, we it turns out that the studio had been uh, booked by somebody that was on Sony, and so we were gonna have to wait. And then it turns out that by the time, like within that week, the band broke up. The band broke up. <laughs> so, but they'd already paid the deposit on the studio. So you got to get it for pennies on the dollar. So right. basically, right. like, we just paid for the expenses. They actually made money in the end because they had the money from Sony, at least half of it, so we were lucky. So that's a bit of kismet, and I'll tell you, when I remember getting, I bought, you know, I think Tower Records was still in business on the Upper West Side, oh. and I bought Let Go. Mm -hmm. And just remember putting it in track one is Blizzard of 77. Mm -hmm. And it's such a... <laughs> you'll hear it, you'll hear it hopefully tonight. Um, I, I remember with my brother, who's also here, he was like, this is not a surf. And it was such a statement. I believe that was your declaration of independence and a declaration of vulnerability. I remember the more it shakes, the more I have to let go. Mm -hmm. When you say let go, like you could have been really bitter about it. You could have stewed, you could have done the flick off. I mean, you flicked off the label too. I mean, let's not be, and you, you and Spoon. But that was so shocking to hear that, to hear Killian's Red, to hear, it was a whole different band. And it seems like you had really done it on your terms and it was mm -hmm. critically received. Mm -hmm. But now the challenge was to make a living off of it. Right, right. Well, you know, we've been very lucky in a way that, that there was this little hiccup in our path because we got to make a first album again. You know, you, when you make your first record, there's very little pressure, you have all this time, you have years and years, you know, maybe it's a song you thought of when you were a young teenager and you kept writing it down and, you know, whatever it is, there's, there's a lot of buildup, but, but once, if, you, if it becomes your career, then you're on this kind of merry-go-round of touring, recording, touring, recording, but the fact that we had nothing to do for a long time. How did you side gig while you were doing that? I worked at a record store. You worked at a record store? Yeah. Were people coming in and saying, oh, Matthew, why don't you, oh. Once in a very long while, someone would mention the band and, and I'd kind of remember, you know. <laughs> oh, yeah. How did you guys make ends meet? I, I, I went back to coding. I was writing. The coding? Yeah. I mean, which, is, which I love doing. I mean, it's, you know, it's like a challenge. Every, it's I like playing chess against yourself. I a drummer in demand, so you could go out as a mercenary. As a drummer, I feel I, I should plead the Fifth Amendment because <laughs> on that question, because I just, I was going to give the classic drummer answer. I lived on the good graces of my girlfriend who had a better job than I did. 
That's just the plane. Louis, how about your That's involvement with the band? I mean, you were, you, were touring, you were touring with the band at this point. You helped them I with... I think I started touring around that time, but I actually, my involvement was during that record Let Go, and they, they brought, like, hard drives and DVDs and stuff, and they just kind of plopped it in my it lap. And so we've got to make an album out of it all does. this. Yeah. And, uh, and so we kind of finished the album in my studio, and... Um, what was, the, what was the reception like? I mean, were you doing Leno? Were you doing these things? Did you, you, you weren't still trafficking on the popularity of popular, and you must have had a real love-hate relationship with we, the song. Well, you know, we were so happy to learn, this is a, this is a perverse fact, but it's, oh, it's I know true, that um, Josh Rosenfeld, who uh, owns Barsu owns, runs Barsook Records, and, um, and Jeff Barrett, who runs Heavenly Records, in in England, they both put out Let Go and neither of them had ever heard Popular. That was kind of cool, you know? We, I remember and they still hadn't after those records came out. After, right after we signed to a Heavenly, in, uh, which was a fantastic label, um, we played in London and, and Jeff Barrett came to the show. And, and so we, we played some of the stuff from, uh, from Proximity Effect. And there were all these you know, people in the audience that knew the songs. And so they were singing along to it. And, and Jeff came up to me after the show, he's like, what's up with that? Yeah. Like, what, why do those people know those songs? I'm like, well, it's the second album. Like, what a, like, I haven't heard that, I didn't know that. Like, he literally like, had no idea that, that the yeah. proximity effect had even existed. Which is great, he was just accepting yeah. us as who we were at that moment, you know? So how many albums come out since? Five. The turn of the century iteration of Nada Surf. Woke, woke Nada. <laughs> all that, <laughs> right? And another point, a huge point of comparison, like I wanna, you know, in the few minutes we have left, I wanna get into like streaming. Um, you, you, you'd mentioned, like I asked you, there are certain people in the world like the Taylor Swifts who can command rents on their music, who could dictate the terms. Mm -hmm. And everybody else who kind of find themselves, now this is duopoly of Apple Music and Spotify. Amazon is kind of involved in it. Mm -hmm. I believe Pharrell came out and said even like two billion streams of happy only gave me like a pittance. Right, right. How are you making a living? Well, you have to tour. Um, you have to sell T-shirts. You, once in a while, a song will be in a, in a movie or on a commercial. But you have to play live. Yeah, that's really helpful. Yeah, you have to play live. How did this Nordstrom yeah. gig a couple of weeks ago come about in Manhattan? Uh, because they, I think, Nordstrom is a Seattle-based store, and they'd asked KEXP to help them put a show together for their new New York store, and KXP have been very good to us. Yeah. Um, and you know, we kind of have a relationship with Seattle through, through Barsook. Through Barsook. Yeah. Yeah, and we've recorded um, there a lot, and we're yeah. probably the most Seattle-esque of New York bands, I think. So to your fans here, yeah. <laughs> That's what I believe. We had this conversation here, and you talk about the, 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 you know, the, the op-ed piece David Lowry wrote. David Lowry's now, you know, in addition to being a yeah. producer, singer, everything, he's, his, his, uh, he'll actually burn custom-colored CDs and go to concerts, and if you don't have a CD burner, that's your problem. If you want to crack the goods, you've got to get your mitts on one. Mm -hmm. But you, many of you told me that, that you, you read his op-ed and you feel guilty about using streaming now. So what's the answer to this? I mean, do super fans end up downloading a Nada Surf app that accrues the majority of the rents to you? Is there a more equitable way to pay for a band? Do you count on Patreon and merch? Like, are, are there new solutions to kind of, you know, 25 years idea. into this? Just had? Yeah, I mean, there's... there's <laughs> band app? That's head. I mean, if, 
Yeah, but the, you, the, to get in the jargon of the industry, then you have multi-homing. How many apps are you right. going to download? Like, right, you want right, to go right, title? Yeah. You want to have... No, there's, there's, there's got to be a solution. I mean, I think eventually there's going to be a reaction against Spotify. Spotify is great. I mean, I, I use it, but I actually pay. I mean... And, yeah, I pay and too. I, and, and I wish I could pay... I don't think I pay enough. I mean, it just seems... Like Matthew was saying, it's just, you know, I mean, it's, I think it's too cheap now yeah. to have everything at your fingertips uh, yeah. for almost for 10 bucks a month is ridiculous. Um, I like, like, I, for example, I'll call, I'll, I'll, I want to go see a band that I love, um, and of course I want to be on the VIP list. I mean, I'm not going to, you know, hang out with the plebe, you know. Boy, but but I'll pay for the ticket. I want to pay for the ticket. I want to support the band. But then, you know, if, if I can not have to wait in line, then that's, that's fantastic. You know what I mean? But, but, but I do want to pay for the ticket. So it's like I, would, I, I love actually, you know, going there and then buying the vinyl, buying the T-shirt. That's a way of supporting the band. But I think that Spotify eventually is just going gonna to go. I mean, but then the, this becomes interesting. It's almost like the patrons of the art and the ballet and the symphony in any city, and you just get a very narrow group of, of, yeah. of, of, ba of benefactors. Is that where we're kind of headed? Like the haves, the have-nots. You know, I'm big into not a surf. I'm big into spoon. I have a prog rock appetite. The cars. There are people who can live on their library, and they're, you know, young spring chickens like you guys who still need to... I think there's going to be a reaction. I think there's going to be a reaction, and the, 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 the Spotify model will is going to evolve into something that's much, just much more less less of a pyramid, and where where everybody everything is just m more repartido, um, you know, like more equitable. And more equitable. Yeah. Eventually, I think that's what's going to happen. You know what? I in in regards to that question, like what's going to happen now? I've been thinking a lot about how. If you look at a, a troubadour 100 years ago, 500 years ago, 1,000 years ago, the troubadour did not have the big house in the village. And these last 50 years where some people have had guitar-shaped swimming pools, I think is the anomaly. That's the weird blip that all of a sudden entertainment became this wildly uh, remunerative um, thing to do. And I don't know. Fearing his poverty, thank you. <laughs> I, well, no, but I mean, things have really improved though because now so many people can be troubadours because they can find each other and they can find people that like that kind of music. So like, there are all these, these niches all of a sudden. So, so in a way, it's become a much richer world, but, but the sort of fantasy of like a wildly good living off, off a few songs is maybe But can you make going a away. still on this, right? In the UK, in Spain, like traveling everything, we are. There's parenthood involved now. You are making yeah. a living on this. Not, not a fantastic one. Like a label, a, an indie label is paying you in advance. How does it work? Uh, no, we, we just give them the record. So we make it ourselves, um, but we get a higher percentage than you would on a major label. So um, it works. Out. Yeah, no, which is great. It's like it's, it's profit sharing. It's 50-50, mm. which feels really good and right. You know. In the couple of minutes we have left, I have to ask you maybe the ultimate counterpoint to the misperception of popular and the, the, the funny frat boy band and everything, a song for Congress. Mm. You would not expect, you know, earlier this year, tell me about the, tell me about the genesis for that. Tell me, you, you've since become very international people. You live in the UK, you split yeah. time, you have roots in New York. But tell us about that. Tell us about the project that came out with your father. Yeah, yeah. So a, a few years ago, I was on tour with Minor Alps, and we got a, a call um, when coming through D.C. John Boehner's the then Speaker of the House, his deputy chief of staff, is a music fan. 
and he gets in touch with musicians and offers them uh, private tours of the Capitol. So I was lucky enough to get this tour of the Capitol building, and it was incredibly moving, like, like walking through the heart of a country. You know, just, just amazing. And to think that the Capitol building was designed and built when there were only four million people in the States, and, but it, it looks and feels like, uh, like the heart of a, of a government of 300 million. You know, it's like they were futurists. Anyway, that was really moving. Then last year, when I read about the uh, family separations at, at our southern border, um, like almost everyone was so upset by it that I called my, my New York representatives, but wished there was something more that I could do and thought, well, why don't I try to do my job job? And what, what would I sing? What would I say to a congressperson if I had their, their attention? Um, and I don't have their attention, but, but the idea was a moonshot just to try it. So I wrote this song um, saying basically, uh, as you walk through Statuary Hall, which is a, which is a room in, in the Capitol building with, with statues of prominent Americans, as you walk through Statuary Hall, do you hear the marble breathing? Do you see the marble moving? Uh, what do you, these statues are trying to talk. What do you think they're trying to say? So I was trying to appeal in a kind of nonpartisan, middle of the road way to any senator or congressperson's sense of history, sense of duty, uh, sense of shame, you know, uh, and, and put it out there, and it, that felt good to do, and I'm gonna be in D.C. the next three days, and um, I would like to play it for a congressman or senator, and I'm trying to do whatever I can to make that happen, but I don't know if it'll, I don't know if it will. I don't know if it will. Okay. Tell us briefly about the plans in, in, in closing. When does the next record drop, and when's your tour? Commence? I'm not sure we're allowed to say when it drops because we're waiting to find out from the, sure. from the, um, You are fully disclosing. Well, because that, because we don't know because it's being pressed right now and we don't know if it's gonna, uh, when it'll be out, but it's, it's done. Yeah. They're all under your seats. You each want a copy. <laughs> right. But only in case of a crash. You get a car, you get a car, you, you get, get a car. car. <laughs> Let me close. I want to say, just in a, in a, you know, almost like a presumptuous, little bit of a corny thing in the end. I mean, we've, we've all opened up here, but um, you are paying forward uh, what Rick Ocasek did for you by coming on this show. Oh. I went to New York and met with Ben Weber, your wonderful, you know, publicist and manager. We met at Bryant Park, and I geeked out, and I told him all this stuff, and he said, all right, great, we'll do it in Brooklyn, we'll do it at the Roseland, we'll do it somewhere. I was like, no, please, come and do it in Richmond, and I'll get you an intimate, and it'll be crazy, and it'll be funky, but it'll be authentic, and your fans will be there, and new people will be there, you know. <laughs> and to quote, crying. You know, to quote, to quote a great philosopher, if we fail, if we succeed, at least we'll live as we believe. Um, so thank you, thank you for that. It's very sweet of you. Oh, thank you, it's been, thank it's been you. a real honor. Thank you so much. A real honor. Full disclosure, wait for it again. You said I should get professional help. So I did. <laughs> Lucas Cross and the branching have been following the band since the moment they landed, spying on them like the DEA. Thank you to director Lucas, Alexandra Cross, Johnny St. Hours, Christina Garnett, Andrew Uvarov, and Sam Bennett on audio. John Valentine is our audio editor. 
Props to Ben Weber and James Perry for believing in this project. Steve Humble at VPM, Herbie Morales on social media, Mark Lugo at The National for believing in this, Abu Abu, Abu Abu and KP Plums, Kristen O'Connor and Jessica Gordon. This show airs on NPR member station VPM News on the NPR One app and on iTunes at link fulldradio.com. Subscribe early and often. Finally, a, a last confession to the band. Wait for it. I know I'm just an amateur, but I've got to try. Not a surf, the stage is yours. Yeah, man, thank you so much. Right on. It's 
been such a wonderful evening. Uh, thank you, Robin, for inviting us and uh, for showing us such a good time and for taking us to Elwood for breakfast this morning. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. Tonight, under a sun. Of 
It's been great to hang out with you. Thanks again to Robin. Thanks you guys so much for coming. <laughs>